We are continuing on this fourth Sunday of Advent, our sermon series, Advent in Isaiah. This morning, as I've already mentioned, we're going to be in chapter 9. And the bulletin says verses 2 through 7. I'm actually going to begin at that first verse of chapter 9 and read through verse 7. Uh, before we read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us turn to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, just as you came and revealed yourself long ago through your word made flesh, come and reveal yourself this day through your written word. Grace us with your presence. Grant that we may get a glimpse of your glory. Speak to us of your love and mercy that descends from heaven to draw near to us in our despair and darkness. And we pray, O Christ, just as you were born long ago in Bethlehem, be born this day in our hearts through the power of your Spirit. For we pray this in the name of the one who was born in Bethlehem, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, hear the word of the Lord. It is written. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire for to us a child is born to us a son is given And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I don't know about all of you, but to me, the hymns of the Advent and Christmas seasons are without doubt among my favorite in the entirety of the hymnal. And it it isn't just the nostalgia of the season. The biblical and theological richness of these hymns is hard to beat. Listen to some of these lyrics. O come, thou rod of Jesse free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. This song both picks up Israel's despair in exile to Babylon 
and our own despair awaiting the return of Jesus Christ as exiles in this world. It's a beautiful expression of our deep longing to be released from the captivity of sin and death. Our longing for wrongs to be righted, our longing for our true home. And even in the hauntingly dark melody of that song, there is this refrain which brings light and gives hope. We are to rejoice even in the darkness. The Messiah has come and he is coming again. Or how about these lyrics? No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found far as the curse is found far as far as the curse is found this might be my favorite line from any song that we sing around christmas How far is the curse found? It is found in every aspect of our humanity. Sin has infected us to the core of our being. It has tainted every thought, every desire, every action. And the great question that has plagued humanity is what is the cure for this curse? For this sin sickness which separates us from God in one another. This hymn answers by declaring that God has come in Jesus Christ to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Dearly beloved, this is about God becoming like us in every way. Not only taking on flesh to look like us, but becoming truly and fully human in Jesus Christ, yet without sin. In order that he might stand in our place, that every aspect of our humanity, which has been marred by sin, might be redeemed. In order that the curse which began in the garden with Adam and Eve's disobedience to God might be reversed at every level. And the blessing is that Christ is a double cure, releasing us from both the guilt and the power of sin. He is our righteousness and our substitute by whose blood our guilt is removed that God's judgment might pass over and our provision by which we might be freed from sin to live in obedience to God. One more, although there really are many, many more. Uh, One more that we will sing this morning. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. This is what our heart longs for, isn't it? Comfort and joy. We 
want all the sadness and all of the bad things of this world to be banished, to be done away with for good, to live a life freed from fear and anxiety and pain. We want to live a life filled with love and security and peace. I received an email uh, late this past week informing me that I could have comfort and joy if only I had the right pair of tennis shoes. Maybe I've been looking in the wrong place for comfort and joy, although I do agree that having a supportive and well-cushioned shoe certainly makes life more enjoyable. But I just don't think that this is going to do it for me. But it really does get to the heart of our problem. We, we go looking to all sorts of things in this world to bring us comfort and joy. And, and the great irony of this season is that it's a season filled with commercialism and materialism. It is filled with advertisements telling us that the fix to our longings is some new clothes or some new jewelry or the latest tech gadget or, I, I don't know, a gingerbread spice latte. But... Perhaps we have felt some disappointment sitting around the Christmas tree on Christmas evening, presents still in piles on the floor around us, as we're left with a sense that all the stuff hasn't satiated our deepest longings. But Isaiah points us to the true significance of Scripture. This book points us to the reality that the comfort and joy we so desire is not found in a what, but in a who. We saw this last Sunday in Isaiah 40 where the prophecy of coming revelation of the glory of the Lord is declared as a source of comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. The promise my Messiah would bring us the greatest comfort, the comfort found in the forgiveness of sins. This is the comfort we are truly looking for, longing for, whether we realize it or not. But if the coming of the Messiah resulted in comfort in Isaiah 40, the result of the coming of the Messiah is declared here in Isaiah 9 to be joy. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the, the spoil. Isaiah here continues to expand our understanding of the coming Messiah and the blessings he brings. And, and we want to consider this joy that is produced by faith in the promised Messiah, but, but first we're going to allow Isaiah to preach to us concerning our problem, our predicament and the, the promise of God's provision, the solution to our problem. So we're going to look at these two things first, our problem and the promise of God's provision. And this is going to be very familiar territory for us, but this is the glory of God's word. It rehearses to us over and over again that God's grace meets us at the point of our deepest need. This is the same song. Different verse, because God knows that we are a stiff-necked people who need constant reminders of our waywardness. But likewise, God repeatedly holds out the goodness of his promises to us that we might see them from every angle and be drawn into them, that we might find all of our delight and hope in him. And this is my prayer for us this day as we look at God's word. So first, the place where we begin is with our problem, our 
predicament. The predicament which humanity universally finds themselves in. Sin. This passage begins with words like gloom, anguish, contempt. The people who walked in darkness, those who dwelt in deep darkness. And contextually, it was a very dark time when Isaiah was writing and prophesying. As we have discussed in previous weeks, Isaiah was prophesying during a very tumultuous period in the history of God's people. The Assyrian army was pressing down on the northern kingdom of Israel and would overtake Israel before the end of Isaiah's ministry. In no uncertain terms, Isaiah speaks to his immediate situation in the first verse. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali were in the very northernmost part of the northern kingdom. They were the first places of the promised land to fall to Assyria when that mighty kingdom finally came to conquer Israel. They were the first places to be plunged into the darkness and gloom. They were in the midnight of darkness. This darkness and gloom that came upon them wasn't just something that happened to them, though as some random unfortunate event, the contempt that had come upon their land was their own doing. It was judgment that had come as a result of their sin. They had rejected God. They had rejected his word. They had rejected his prophets. They had turned to worship other gods. And Isaiah prophesied their demise on account of their rebellion against God. But we need to understand here that this is what sin does. It plunges us into darkness and despair. This isn't just the darkness and despair of being politically and militarily conquered and oppressed. The darkness to which Isaiah speaks is a spiritual darkness. And it isn't just darkness. Isaiah says they dwelt in the land of deep darkness. Uh, the little, literal translation is a death shadow. And this is precisely what sin does in our lives. It casts a shadow of death. Where there is confusion and chaos, where spiritual ignorance abounds in which there is a spiritual inability to see and understand truth. And this leads to moral decay and death as it alienates us from God. When scripture speaks of our sin, this is a picture that is painted. Darkness, gloom, anguish, despair, death. This is what sin produces. Whatever our sin promises us, and it usually promises something great, what it actually produces is darkness and death. Sin brings the kingdom of darkness. And this wasn't something that began with the threat of the Assyrian army. This is something that began at the fall of man, which plunged all of humanity into the, the darkness of sin and death. And it didn't end with the Assyrian invasion because the solution isn't simply political freedom and peace. We have in the modern Western world, unfortunately, demonstrated that you can be as free as free can be, politically speaking, 
but still live under the dominion of darkness, still live under spiritual darkness and oppression, imprisoned by sin and guilt. So it's not a matter of political freedom. That wasn't what Isaiah was speaking to. But certainly Israel's political situation was meant to point us to the spiritual reality. The defeat of Israel at the hands of Assyria teaches us that our idols don't deliver us. They had looked to treaties with other nations to save them. It didn't work. Our idols don't deliver us. They devour us. They did then, and they still do today. It's a lesson to us of the darkness we will be plunged into if we too rebel against God and place our hope in the things of this world. But we know this all too well. In this post-Christian America in which God and his ways have been rejected, we live in a culture of darkness in which confusion and chaos reigns. And I don't think I need to recite the many examples of this in the world all around us. It seems like every day a new example is added to the list. Most, most recently, the utter lack of moral clarity that was evidenced by the presidents of some of the most elite universities in this nation. We live in a land of deep darkness where the moral decay caused by spiritual ignorance is painfully obvious. But thanks be to God, our darkness is no barrier to God or to his fulfilling of his purposes. So even as Isaiah proclaims the predicament of sin, he points to God's provision. Verse 1, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And Isaiah continues, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. God sends light to break through his people's darkness, into our darkness and despair. In those things, we aren't able to provide that which is necessary to move ourselves out of the confusion and chaos. We, we can't fix our predicament. And if you are in deep darkness, lost in total confusion, you, you aren't going to grope your way out. Your only hope is that light shines on your situation from beyond you, a light that will bring spiritual insight, a light that illumines a path and brings a clarity of purpose. And this is exactly what Isaiah declares God will do. He will shine his light upon his people despite their rebellion. So confident was Isaiah that this work would be done. Notice here, he speaks of this as though it is already accomplished. He speaks in what is known as the prophetic perfect tense. Uh, prophets in the power of God and by the Spirit of God were cast into the future where they are shown the mighty works of God, where God's plan is revealed, allowing them to proclaim these events as though looking back on them. And because God is faithful to his word, when the prophets foretold these events, they were as good as done. But the question is, what would this light be that would penetrate the gloom and anguish of life? And Isaiah would provide the answer. So second, we see the promise of God's provision for our predicament. 
we see the promise of God's provision for our predicament. God sends his light. And this comes in a rather unexpected form. Listen to the promise God gives to his people. That would be the source of illumination in the darkness of their sin. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child is born. A son is given. This is a birth announcement of a coming king, but this is no ordinary king. And this becomes most obvious in the names given to this king. Now, we need to understand that names carried great significance for the Hebrew people. A person's name revealed who he or she was and what his or her mission was. And these particular names in Isaiah 9, 6 would be names that would not be names that you would give to a mere mortal. The middle two might be the most immediately obvious examples of this. We know that the Hebrew people did not assign any type of divinity to their kings, unlike some of the surrounding nations like Egypt. It was understood that there was only one God, and the king wasn't him. But here we find the name Mighty God. This is not something a Hebrew would call one of their normal kings. This should be a hint to us that something more is going on here. Everlasting father is another hint. Now, many kings claim to be like a father to their people, but the name given here is everlasting father. It is a type of fatherhood that would endure forever. So these two names provide some immediate, obvious indications that this coming king would be more than a man. But actually, when we understand what the other names mean, then we see that actually all of them are pointing to a coming Messiah who would be truly man, born a child, as Isaiah foretells, and yet truly God. God himself would come to reign over his people. And we could spend some really significant time on each of these names. I just want to say a quick word about each of them. First is Wonderful Counselor. This might not be immediately obvious to us, but this name matches descriptions of God in Isaiah, like in Isaiah 28 and verse 29, where we are told that God, quote, is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. And the wisdom of God is contrasted here with the folly of human wisdom, which is derided throughout Isaiah, like in Isaiah 47 in which God declares, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. So in this name, we are being told that the coming king would stand in contrast to Ahaz, whose decisions during the time of Isaiah ruined Israel. But it would also transcend the, the wisdom of Solomon. This king would give wondrous counsel which would be unfailing in the depth of its wisdom. 
He would be the one whose words would bring clarity in life, who, who you could be confident in trusting yourself to, in submitting your life to, in following. Next is the name Mighty God. And just like the name Wonderful Counselor, this name is associated with God himself. Isaiah 10, verse 21, Isaiah prophesies, A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. This name speaks of God's power. It, it was a power that was able to protect, to provide for, to prosper his people. It, it was a power that was able to deliver even from the strongest of worldly enemies. As one commentator puts it, this king will have God's true might about him, power so great that it can absorb all the evil which can be hurled at it until none is left to hurl. This is a king who can provide true security. The third name is Everlasting Father. And just like the first two, this is also a name associated with God himself. Isaiah 63, verse 16, where it is said of God, For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. This name speaks to the special relationship God has with his people. A people whom he loves, cares for, and disciplines as his adopted children. This is even more than we could expect or hope for from a sovereign who reigns over us. The fourth and final name is Prince of Peace. This name really speaks not just to this king's character, but also to the society that this king would create. As one commentator states, what, what sort of king is this? He is a peaceful king who comes in peace, and one who establishes peace, not by a brutal squashing of all defiance, but by means of a transparent vulnerability which makes defiance pointless. Somehow through him will come the reconciliation between God and man that will then make possible reconciliation between man and man. This king would come and make all things right, would bring perfect harmony. And so even with this brief overview of these names, we see that all of them point to the perfect character of the coming king, one who is not just man, but also God. Isaiah then proclaims that God would send illumination by way of incarnation, light by way of a God-man who would come to rule not just Israel, but all nations with the perfect righteousness and justice and peace of God's everlasting kingdom. He is the one in whom the deep longings of God's people would be fulfilled. He would replace the finite and flawed human leaders with the perfect king. And no more talk of impeachment. And this king would come not as one who rules with oppression and fear, but in humility and gentleness and love. As one commentator states, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who perfectly fulfills this prophecy. Jesus is the wisdom of God's word made flesh who comes being born as a helpless baby to a peasant woman in Bethlehem. Jesus is the one who is mighty to save, being born to die, but who has the power to lay down his life and take it back up again in order to crush our greatest enemy, death and Satan, and to redeem his people. Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us, who tells us if we have seen him, we have seen the Father and his great love for us. Jesus is the one who brings peace by his sacrificial death on a cross, reconciling all those who place faith in him with the Father. Jesus is the one who can truly then declare peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And so Jesus is the one sent by God into the world to bring illumination. This is exactly what John declared in the first chapter of his gospel, that in Jesus Christ, God's light has come into the world. He was the true light, which gives light to everyone. And Jesus declared himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And isn't it interesting that the light comes into the place of deepest darkness? The place where the darkness began, Galilee of the nations. It shouldn't be lost on us that Matthew quotes this passage from Isaiah in the fourth chapter of his gospel in which he tells of the start of Jesus' ministry. And where does this ministry begin? Galilee, where Jesus went after John the Baptist was arrested. Jesus begins his ministry at what was, in a way, the epicenter of the spiritual darkness in the land of Israel. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so what we find here is that Jesus is the complete Savior. Everything that we need, God has given to us in Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom we need. He is the power we need. He is the love we need. He is the peace we need. So we have seen our predicament of sin. We have seen the promise of God's provision in Jesus Christ. And now... Isaiah reveals that the natural outworking of the coming of God's promised provision is joy. Joy is what is produced by the coming of Jesus Christ into the world and into our lives. Right in the middle of this passage we find this. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Having God's light shining on you, receiving the greatest gift in the universe brings overwhelming joy. This is why scripture is filled with references to joy, great joy, increasing joy, everlasting joy, like here, like Isaiah chapter 51 and verse 11. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. 
They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The scriptures telling us of the birth of Jesus Christ are permeated, are saturated with joy. It is the good news of great joy. There is much rejoicing when the Messiah comes. In him, Psalm 16 finds its fulfillment. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is what Jesus says to his followers after telling them of his great love for them and instructing them to abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. It is joy as like at the time of the harvest. It is joy as like when the war has ended and the spoils of war divided among the victors. These are both seen as gifts given by God in Deuteronomy chapter 28 with the harvest representing the sphere of creation, the spoils representing the sphere of history. These two things together are revealing that there will be a completeness of joy, every sort of joy ever known given by God in the coming of the Messiah. Notice the other references here. The yoke of his burden. The staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. It's a reminder of the Lord delivering his people from the oppression they faced in Egypt. The joy, the joy of freedom. You have broken as on the day of Midian. Do you remember what happened at Midian? It was where Moses fled after killing the Egyptian soldier. It's where he married his wife and encountered the burning bush. But it was also where Gideon was told by God to narrow down his army from more than 30,000 men to 300 to face the entirety of the Midian army. And Gideon did, and they defeated that army, killing more than 130,000 men. Do you understand? Joy is found when the heavy weight of sin is removed and we are finally and fully free. Joy is found when God intervenes in our darkness and despair and overcomes it by his light. Joy is found when God breaks into our lives, bringing his victory and all his blessings. Joy comes when God narrows down the warriors from 30,000 to 300 to just one, the one who comes and gains a full and final victory. So everlasting is his victory that all of the battle gear can be burned up. It won't be needed any longer. There will never be another sacrifice needed. This is what Jesus Christ has done for us. He has entered our darkness. He faced it at Gethsemane and Calvary and has willingly been plunged into the darkness of the tomb for us. There is therefore no more wrath for the people of God. The wrath of God has been exhausted for those who belong to him by faith. Jesus drank every drop of it. He did this for you. For to you a child has been born, to you a son has been given. The government of your life shall be upon his shoulder. 
God deals with our burdens by bearing them himself. He deals with our beatings by being beaten himself and nailed to a cross. He sets us free from our tyrants by putting out his neck to the tyranny of all hell let loose against him. We are burdened, we are oppressed, and in the darkness of this world, we are tempted to look to the things of this earth for the solution, but dearly beloved, look to Jesus Christ in him crucified. Look to him for light. Find in him the joy of liberation and victory. There is joy now, and there is joy to come. The joy of faith and all the blessings of the heavenly realm made available to us through the power of the Spirit in the present. It is a joy that supersedes all our current struggles because there is a fullness of joy awaiting us in the time to be revealed. The joy of our inheritance in Christ kept in heaven for those who have placed faith in Jesus Christ. This is why we sing these songs around Christmas. It is the ringing bells of our joy declaring the Messiah has come. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee. Dearly beloved, do you know this joy today? If not, I want to encourage you to look to Jesus, to place your faith in him. What you desire won't be found under a Christmas tree. It'll be found in the one who hung on the tree. The one who, by the way of the cross, makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Find in him everything your heart desires this Christmas. O tidings of comfort, and joy. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your one beloved son to us, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might be redeemed from the curse. Lord, help us to look to him, to celebrate him, to find in him our joy this Christmas. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Nicene Creed. Beloved, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God.